Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Thursday, October 13th, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today. NATO has a 10-year plan to rebuild Ukraine's military. So this is according to a report from Politico that said NATO is developing a 10-year plan to rebuild Ukraine's military and arms industry with a focus on shifting the country from using Soviet equipment to primarily using NATO weapons. A senior NATO official told Politico, quote, we will be looking at defense planning requirements to get Ukraine fully interoperable with NATO. It's about shifting away from Soviet equipment to NATO-compatible Western equipment, end quote. So this plan is in the works in the first meeting between NATO and Ukraine, between NATO and Ukrainian officials on this plan is set to be held next week. NATO acquisition officials held a meeting this month to discuss ways to help Ukraine's defense industry and how to ramp up their own arms production to replenish stockpiles of weapons that they've sent to Ukraine. But this new efforts, effort will focus entirely on Ukraine's arm, arms industry. Um, so the political report said that the effort could turn Ukraine into a NATO country by default. That's the way Politico put it, even if it isn't technically a member of the military alliance. So such close Ukrainian cooperation with NATO will be unacceptable for Russia, which has made clear one of its main motives for launching the invasion was Kiev's alignment with the military alliance. Working to turn Ukraine into a de facto NATO state will likely lead to an even further escalation from Russia than what we've seen recently. It will also solidify Moscow's view that it is not just fighting against Ukraine, but the U.S. and NATO as well. Uh, while NATO is planning to support Ukraine for the next decade, because that's what they're saying here, that they plan on arming and changing Ukraine's military over the next 10 years. So that's where they're thinking on this. Um so while this is happening, a uh, few NATO members besides Turkey and Hungary have been calling for a de-escalation in the war. And I just had to mention again that report from the Washington Post that I went over yesterday that said U.S. officials have ruled out the idea of pushing Ukraine to negotiate with Russia, even though they don't believe either side can win outright. And that came after Ukraine hardened its stance against negotiating with Moscow in response to Russia's annexation of the territories that it has absorbed. Um, so, I mean, this is just a sign that this is what the U.S. and NATO are planning, that they, in their minds, there's just no end in sight for supporting this war. Because you see that even these U.S. officials say they don't think Ukraine can win outright. But uh, at the same time, they have plans to support them for the next 10 years. I mean, it's just really unbelievable. Um and the next one here, similar story here. Uh, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, says that Ukraine will be on the offensive through the winter and vows support for, ye for the years ahead. So Austin said this after chairing a meeting in Brussels known as the Defense Contact Group, and that consists of military officials from about 50 different nations. So Austin said that he predicts 
Ukraine will be on the offensive throughout the winter and vowed that the U.S. would continue supporting Ukraine with weapons in the difficult weeks, months, and years ahead. He said, quote, I expect that Ukraine will continue to do everything it can throughout the winter to regain its territory and to be effective on the battlefield. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that they have what's required to be effective, end quote. So Ukraine, as we know, recently made gains in the southern Kherson region and the eastern Kharkiv region. Uh, but its offensives for now have stalled. Uh, there's still been fighting going on, but there hasn't been any major pushes from Ukraine in a few days. And Russia is reinforcing its positions after Putin called up 300,000 fresh troops when he ordered that partial mobilization and annexed these territories. And when they did that annexation, you know, something that the Kremlin said when asked, because when Putin, when it became formal, uh, Ukraine was still making some gains. Uh, and when asked about that, the Kremlin said that they're going to take back those territories. And they said that they will be Russian forever. So that's how Russia is looking at this. Um, and it looks like Russia has made some uh, advances in the eastern uh, Donetsk region, uh, just a, but small. There hasn't been like a major push by Russia yet. Uh, but the missile strikes have continued across Ukraine uh, in response to the truck bombing on the Crimean Bridge. And the strikes targeted infrastructure, including power infrastructure. Ukraine's energy minister said that Russia hit about 30% of the country's energy infrastructure in strikes on Monday and Tuesday, and strikes continued on Wednesday. Um, not sure exactly how intense they were. Seemed a little more limited, but uh, they continued. And now Austin said that Russian that the Russian missile barrage has increased the resolve of the U.S.'s allies to support Ukraine, and Ukraine's Western backers have been pledging to send more air defense systems. Germany announced Wednesday that uh, the first shipment of an air defense system that they have sent has arrived in Ukraine, and the White House said on Tuesday that it was expediting the shipment of national advanced surface-to-air missile systems. So Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he also attended the meeting in Brussels and pledged open-ended support for Ukraine, despite the risk of provoking Moscow. He said, quote, as President Biden has said and many other national leaders have said, we will do as much as we can for as long as we can, and we will do as much as it takes for as long as it takes, end quote. So again, that's the attitude that there's just no end in sight for this. Uh, the next one here is Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. He asks for $55 billion to cover budget deficit and to fund reconstruction. So Zelensky asked for this on Wednesday um, for all this new aid. He spoke virtually to finance ministers at the World Bank and to the IMF's annual meeting in Washington. And he said that $38 billion was needed to cover next year's expected budget deficit. And another $17 billion was needed to start rebuilding some infrastructure. So earlier, previously, Ukraine's prime minister, Denis uh, Shmael, he said that Ukraine expects this $38 billion deficit in 2023. And guess who's going to foot most of the bill for that? It seems like it's the U.S., he said that he expect, expects the U.S. to 
uh, hand over $18 billion for the deficit and for the EU and the IMF to contribute about $12 billion each. Um, so again, the U.S. is just by far the biggest uh, aid provider, weapons provider, supporter of Ukraine. Uh, but Zelensky said on Wednesday, quote, the more assistance Ukraine gets now, the sooner we'll come to an end to the Russian war. And the sooner and more reliably, we will guarantee that such a cruel war will not spread into other countries, end quote. So the IMF's managing director said that the IMF estimates that Ukraine will need about $3 billion to $4 billion in external aid each month next year to keep its economy running. Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, she said that the U.S. will soon disperse another $4.5 billion in direct budgetary aid to Ukraine, which will bring the total that the U.S. has provided for Ukraine's budget since the war started to about $13 billion. So this direct budgetary aid, they just just money they're handing to the Ukrainian government to uh, pay for to keep the government running and to pay for government services and things like that. This government, notoriously corrupt government, and before Russia invaded, it was pretty common to hear about Ukraine's corruption in Western media. But uh, it's been pretty; uh, they've been pretty quiet about that since the U.S. has been sending tens of billions of dollars worth of aid to Ukraine. It was always the reason they said they couldn't join NATO or the EU was because of their corruption. Um, all right. I just want to, I'll take now to mention that again, that it's our fundraiser and we have another just amazing endorsement. If you go to antiwar.com and look at the top of the page, John Mearsheimer, uh, who's just, I mean, when we talk about important voices during this time, I mean, he's considered, you know, the Dean of the realist school of foreign policy. But if you go look at his lectures on YouTube since the war started, I mean, they get millions of views. And he really goes over and really hammers the point of how the U.S. and NATO have provoked this war. And when you listen to him, uh, you know, he just makes such a good argument. And it's good that um, his voice gets so far. And it's also great uh, that he is endorsing us. Uh, he thinks we're very important. And he wrote us a, a letter here. Um, basically the gist of it is that what he says is that governments sometimes pursue foolish foreign policies with disastrous consequences. And he says that to avoid these disaster, disastrous consequences, you know, they, these issues have to be spoken openly and media institutions are hugely important in fostering this kind of de debate, which is why freedom of press is so protected in the U.S., um, so he says that uh, the mainstream media in the U.S. has become less effective since the end of the Cold War. And I'm just going to read uh, the rest of his letter here. He says, it has become increasingly difficult for dissenters to get a platform in prominent media outlets. And mainstream media outlets often seem to speak with one voice on the big foreign policy issues of the day. The situation is not healthy. And it helps explain why America's standing in the world has declined over the past three decades. Antiwar.com plays an enormously important role in filling this dangerous void in our public discourse. It provides a platform for critics to challenge the reigning views of the foreign policy establishment, which is essential for increasing the likelihood that the United States will pursue wiser policies. 
For this region, for this reason, I urge readers to generously support antiwar.com. In these troubled times, a flourishing antiwar.com is very much in the U.S. national interest. So I really liked, you know, the way he put that. Um, that's pretty good. So you got to listen to him. Go to antiwar.com/donate, and you'll see all the ways you can uh, help give us money. And this way, we could wrap up our fundraiser soon so we could just focus on uh, our work that John Mearsheimer says is very important. Um, all right, so the next piece of news here, President Biden says he has no intention of meeting with Putin over Ukraine. So Biden said this in an interview with Jake Tapper, with CNN's Jake Tapper on that aired on Tuesday night. He said that he has no intention of meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin or negotiating with Russia on Ukraine. Biden left over, he left open the possibility of discussing a potential prisoner swap for Brittany Griner, who's the WNBA star that was arrested in Russia for uh, drug possession. Uh, but so the potential venue for a Putin Biden meeting is the G20 summit that is going to be held next month in November in Indonesia. So Biden's saying, I'll, I'll just read what he said. He said, quote, look, I have no intention of meeting with him. But for example, if he came to meet me at the G20 and said, I want to talk about the release of Griner, I'd meet with him. I mean, it would depend, end quote. So even that, he, you know, doesn't sound very hopeful. But he did make clear that he has no plans to discuss the war in Ukraine with Putin, insisting that negotiations can't happen without Ukrainian officials. So sticking to the line that we're not going to negotiate anything about Ukraine without Ukraine. He said, quote, so I'm not about to, nor is anyone else prepared to negotiate with Russia about them staying in Ukraine, keeping any part of Ukraine, end quote. So again, I just mentioned uh, that how the U.S. has ruled out pushing Ukraine to negotiate. And, you know, the U.S.'s lack of interest in diplomacy, it comes after President Biden warned that the world was closer to nuclear Armageddon today than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Speaking of John Mearsheimer, I've heard him say, you know, Kennedy and Khrushchev worked out a deal that saw the U.S. pull missiles out of Turkey and the Soviets uh, pulled their missiles out of Cuba. Kennedy all, also gave assurances that he wouldn't invade Cuba. But Mearsheimer has said that today it's like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but Kennedy is not speaking with Khrushchev. Now, that deal that they made was secret, uh, so hopefully, you know, I keep saying, I keep trying to be somewhat optimistic and say, hopefully there's some secret talks going on, but judging by all these reports and comments about negotiations, it doesn't seem like there is. Um, I mean, at some level, there has to be, but definitely not at the higher level that is needed. It doesn't seem like at least. Uh, so, but when discussing his Armageddon comments with Tapper, Biden said that he did not think Putin would use a nuclear weapon. Um, so maybe kind of toning down, uh, what his, his warnings by saying that, but still he did say, you know, we're close to nuclear Armageddon. Uh, but for their part, Russia has said that it's open to talks with the West over Ukraine. Uh, the Kremlin said that Putin is going to meet with Erdogan in Kazakhstan on Thursday. And the two leaders are expected to discuss a Turkish proposal for talks between Russia and the West and, a possible idea for a peace deal. This is according to a Kremlin official. And this Kremlin official, this Kremlin aide, Yuri Yushikov, uh, 
said that um, there's reports that the Turkish side is going to put forward a specific proposal and that it's interesting and, you know, that Russia sounds interested in it. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, Turkey's really pushing. They really want uh, this war to end, it seems like. Um, but, I mean, just everything I've been going over tells me that uh, it's probably not going to end anytime soon. Okay, so the next one, Putin offers to ship gas through the undamaged line in Nord Stream 2. So Putin offered on Wednesday to ship gas to Europe through Nord Stream 2. Uh, so there, there was the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines last month. And each, so there's two Nord Stream pipelines, one and two, and each has two lines that can carry gas. Nord Stream 1, both lines were damaged and and leaked after the explosions. Nord Stream 2, only one line. So Gazprom, the Russian state gas company, has said this before that they would ship. They said, yeah, tell us if you want it. We'll ship you some gas through Nord Stream 2. And, and here's Putin saying the same thing. But the idea was quickly rejected by Germany. Um, a German uh, government spokeswoman basically just said, Russia is not a reliable supplier of gas. And um, when asked if Berlin had ruled out accepting Russian gas through the Nord Stream 2, she said, yes, it's, yes, they ruled it out. So it doesn't seem like Germany is going to uh, take that step anytime soon. Although winter is coming and energy prices are really skyrocketing. Um, but Nord Stream 2 never... Uh, delivered gas the construction was completed last year even though the u.s really tried hard to stop it through sanctions and and other means um but germany paused the pro the the project around the time russia invaded um and putin he also condemned the Nord Stream attacks as acts of terrorism and he said that there were countries that stand to gain from the sabotage and he mentioned poland and the u.s so the U.S., as we know, tried to stop Nord Stream 2 for, for years and years. They were working against it. President Biden threatened to put an end to the pipeline if Russia invaded Ukraine. He made that threat back in February. And Blinken recently called the incident a tremendous opportunity to wean Europe off Russian gas. So U.S., the U.S. and some of its allies definitely have the motive to blow up the Nord Stream pipelines. But at this point, we don't know, uh, you know, there's no concrete evidence um, tying it to the U.S. or its allies, the Poles or the British or some other uh, uh, countries that could have could have done it. And Sweden is conducting an investigation of the attacks, but they said they're not going to share their findings with Russia or Gazprom. And Gazprom is the majority owner of the pipelines. They, they're the majority stakeholder in Nord Stream 1 and the sole owner of Nord Stream 2. So it's their pipelines and Sweden saying that they're not going to share information about the investigation. So I don't know if we should expect, you know, an impartial investigation here. Um, anyway, so the next one here, President Biden he released his national security strategy, the Biden administration. Uh, it's pretty long awaited. You know, these usually come out much earlier in, a, in an administration. But it, this uh, strategy identified China as Washington's most consequential geopolitical challenge. 
So while the U.S. is spending tens of billions of dollars on a proxy war against Russia, U.S. officials have made clear pretty, they've said this a lot, and this is kind of formalizing it, this national security strategy, that they view China as more of a challenge in the long term than Russia. The strategy says that the top foreign policy priorities for the U.S. are to compete with China and constrain Russia. The strategy says that while Russia poses an immediate threat, China is the, quote, only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to advance that objective, end quote. So this strategy, it falls in line with the rhetoric that we've heard, been hearing from the Biden administration all along. Biden officials frequently accuse Russia and China of looking to, cha- to change the so-called rules-based order, which basically just means the U.S.-led global order, the U.S.-dominated order. Um, And they have framed competition with the two countries as a battle between autocracy and democracy, um, which really shows the hypocrisy because they, uh, you know, when Biden was in Saudi Arabia, he was saying this stuff to the Gulf Cooperation Council, to a group of Arab monarchs, that they needed to join the U.S. in this battle between democracy and autocracy. Um, but anyway, so what's in, interestingly, the strategy declares that the post-Cold War era is over. It says, quote, the post-Cold War era is definitively over and a competition is underway between the major powers to shape what comes next, end quote. So it's they're saying, you know, the unipolar moment has passed, I guess, and that now they have these two powers that they have to worry about. And to compete with Russia and China, the strategy says that the U.S. will increase cooperation with like-minded countries and deepen alliances and partnerships. And while framing the relationship with China and Russia as competition, the strategy also says that the U.S. is willing to work with its geopolitical rivals on shared challenges. And Jake Sullivan, he delivered some remarks on this strategy claiming that the U.S. does not want to divide the world into blocks, claiming that they're not seeking a new Cold War. But it seems to me that that's exactly what they're uh, seeking here. Um, And there's more to that uh, strategy if people want to check it out. Um, I linked to the the whole thing in this article. Um, It's about 30-something pages if you want to skim through it. Uh, There's some interesting nuggets in there that I just didn't have time to know cover everything uh the next one this is from foreign policy which uh is a source that we would you know rarely run something from but it's a very good article these ads are in the way um let's see so this article just goes over it really summarizes but it's by john bateman and he's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And what this article goes over is the decoupling between the U.S. and China that Biden has really accelerated. And I mean, he, he put some numbers in here. And, you know, there's been all sorts of stuff really since Trump, you know, starting with the trade war and the tariffs. But he also started these kind of export restrictions and sanctions trying. And they've lately, the Biden administration, they've really ramped this stuff up, specifically with semiconductors. They're trying to stop China from being able to make advanced chips. And this article, I can't really summarize it. It's very detailed, um, but it really just goes into how 
Biden. I mean, the title is Biden is now all in on taking out China. And as I've been, you know, kind of covering and, and following closely U.S.-China relations over the past just few years, I always said, like, a there's not going to be a war unless there's like a serious decoupling. But this seems like they're really moving in that direction faster than I thought. And uh, there was one line that that struck me in here. It said, basically, there's so the right, the not I shouldn't say the right Republicans are, you know, they've made bashing China uh, their thing. Democrats are not going to speak out against it. A lot of them are also bashing China. Nobody is speaking out against decoupling. It says the way it's phrased in here is no prominent figure in the United States has come out against decoupling with China, really. Um, political figure, I guess they mean. Uh, so um, this is happening at a pretty rapid rate, it seems like. Um, so I would suggest people go check that out. It's linked to at our front page if you want to just read more details about it. I followed that stuff you know, somewhat, um, but... It, there is a lot to it. Okay, so now the last story here in the news section. This is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. North Korea test fires another missile. They're saying uh, it's a long-range nuclear-capable cruise missile. Um, so this is just uh, the latest test. I mean, these have become very common. Kyle says North Korea has now test-fired 14 missiles in seven tests during the past two weeks and North Korea claims that it now has the ability to launch nuclear capable missiles from underwater silos and said that they developed a new intermediate range missile. Um, so these missile tests just don't seem like they're going to end. And the U S and South Korea have been responding with their own tests and war games and drills. Um, and the Biden administration has shown no sign that they're going to try a different approach with North Korea because clearly what they're doing is not, uh, is not getting anywhere. Uh, but that's it for the news. And as always, we have a lot of good viewpoints. We have a good one from Ted Snyder. Stop the dangerous escalation of the war in Ukraine. And yeah, I mean, just going over the news today, it's looking pretty bleak. Um, there's just so much money to be made in arming Ukraine and transforming its military into a NATO de facto NATO military. I mean, you think about it, like there's a lot of NATO countries like North Macedonia, for example, that were admitted recently, former Soviet states that they don't have NATO militaries anywhere near what Ukraine has now. Um, so, you know, and you talk about uh, just what, how Russia views Ukraine being aligned with NATO. I mean, how are they going to respond to this? I mean, we're just going to see more destruction as a result. Um, but that's it for me for today. Please help support us, antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Odyssey channel. I've been getting a few more, uh, some more activity over there, which is cool because I know a lot of people want to um, get off YouTube. Uh, but that's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thank you for listening.